there was a massive trend for many years in the outdoor space of just everything being like super serious and dramatic and everything had to have this like profound story attached to it. And I was like, we're literally riding bicycles, like being children in our adult bodies. Like what is going on with this shit? And so I started just kind of like taking the piss and that snowballed. And um, really, it's a snowball. It's a runaway joke. My career is a runaway joke. Like, let's just call it that. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we're talking about practice. They peed on the dude's rug. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Payson McCalvin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Really fun podcast this week. We had Katie Burrell on to discuss her new feature-length film, Weak Layers. Uh, you may know Katie from the socials. She turns out very funny Instagram reels uh, that can also be thought-provoking at times, for sure. She's a comedian, actor, director, screenwriter, influencer, and self-proclaimed professional leisure athlete. She has a very diverse background. You may have seen some of her fun short films on YouTube, but recently she decided to dive in the very deepest end of content and filmmaking and create a feature-length film. And as someone that really enjoys the filmmaking process and, and appreciates creativity and storytelling, I was so curious what it's like to do that. Um, it just sounds like an absolutely monstrous undertaking. And we get pretty granular with that process some of the time. Uh, but Katie, being who she is, keeps it pretty dang light. And it was just loads of fun. So enjoy. Quickly, just a heads up, we are giving away some gear on the Adventure Stash socials. Every Friday, we've been doing these quizzes, and we pick a winner each week and get some fun socks sent out. But we decided to up the ante a little bit, and Osprey has pitched in a 40-liter transporter duffel, which is one of the bags that I use most often. Uh, it's a really sweet bag, big duffel, weather-resistant. Um, and you can go win one. All you got to do is next week play the Friday quiz over on the Adventure Stash Instagram um, and the week after that, we'll uh, give away some Osprey gear yet again. Big thanks to them for upping the ante for our weekly giveaways. All right. Catch you after the show. We're on the road. Colleen is taking a call in the other room. I'm taking the podcast call in the kitchen. I sound like a lounge singer because I've been talking for 72 hours without breaks at crowds and, um, I'm really in my like 1940s smoker era, it sounds like, so. And your laptop has literally no more capacity, even for an audio file, which is pretty small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my laptop is really ready to retire. It's begging me to be shipped off to Florida for retirement, but I, uh, I'm too cheap to buy a new laptop because I get away with so much of just not having to buy a new laptop because I'm not the, the technical whiz of the operation here. So I'm rolling a laptop from like 2010 that just barely wow. is hang, hanging on to life. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. impressive. Like That's first, a story in its own right. <laughs> first gen shit for sure. 
Um, okay, well, let's. This is a great jumping off point. So you have a laptop that's totally at capacity. Your voice is shot. There are multiple people taking calls right now in the same house, uh, a house none of which you live in because you're on the road. Can you describe your life right now? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How much time do you have? So we just got to Vancouver from Whistler. We were at the Whistler Film Festival this weekend where we had three screenings of Week Layers and we had a Saturday night screening. We did a Sunday morning screening and a Sunday night screening. And then a, a few members of the crew came up from LA and Tahoe. We had just, yeah, team dinners and tons of Q and A's and lots of sort of um, screenings. And we were, we were g- given an, an honorable mention in the mountain culture film feature film category, which was very exciting. And I was nominated for uh, best BC director, which is also very exciting. I didn't even know that was a category. And, um, <laughs> and so I feel like Whistler all, all in all was an incredible success. And I was just so excited to share it at Whistler. Cause I have so many friends and family on the coast as well. And, uh, and then, yeah, other than that, cause we've, we've really only shown it at Kendall in mm-hmm. the UK and Banff in Alberta. So we're in Vancouver. We're in Vancouver for the week. I'm apartment hunting. And then, mm. yeah. I, just because um, you're not busy enough. Just because I'm not busy enough, I decided to move over the holidays, yep. uh, nice. as, as one does when they're a total sadist. I've been living in Revelstoke since, well, I mean, off and on since 2010, but all my work is requiring me to travel right now. I was in LA for four months last year. I was in Tahoe for three months before that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on the road constantly for productions, and I've just signed with a an agency that, um, like as a director to do, start doing some commercial work and Mm. they're Toronto based. So I'm like, I just need to, I just need to live in an airport. That's really, (laughs) yeah, that's what would be ideal is just if I could, you know, just post up like Tom Hanks terminal style because driving in and out of Revelstoke is just starting to feel like I'm taking my life into my own hands. Like every time I get on the road, especially in the winter and it's adding a day of travel on either end to an already insanely packed travel schedule. So I just decided to to get a place in Vancouver so I at least have a quicker turnaround um, travel-wise. It's already looking like January and February and March are going to be pretty full-on with continuing to promote the film, which is, you know, when you're not famous, you have to do a lot more like uh, squeezing the orange for the juice, like if work. you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. yeah. I mean, Timothy Chalamet can be like, you know, there's the movie boom everybody knows about it you know there's so many there's like this massive machine working um on those huge studio budget movies on these indies with effectively like like no names if you will um you really are like bootstrapping and uh bootstrapping the the marketing and and to make sure that people know about the movie want to see it get their get the bums and seats if you will well, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to uh, talk to you was you're in this really interesting phase where you've you've really dove in the deep end with doing your first feature length film. And it's such an interesting, I mean, it's a massive leap for the reasons that you already just kind of touched on. And I'm so curious about the mechanics of that and kind of sounds like carnage, honestly, but also really <laughs> really exciting um and just from a personal curiosity standpoint i'm so excited to hear about how you pulled the pieces together um 
I'm looking forward to diving into that. To be honest, I'm still kind of hung up though on your uh, apartment at airports idea though. I feel like you may have just come up with an incredible business idea. I know they have those sleep rooms, um, but it's not a far, not a not a big leap to, I mean, apartments at airports, that's brilliant. Right? So let's do a little bit of background. Um, sure. There's gonna be plenty of people who know who, know who you are, but like you said, you're not Timothy Charlemagne, so plenty won't also. Um, you are a filmmaker. You have uh, a really fun Instagram channel, which is how actually my partner, Nicole, uh, introduced me to you. Um, you have some really fun YouTube films, kind of short films. Um, I know you've done brand work, all that sort of thing. But can you paint us a little bit of a, it doesn't have to be a timeline per se, but just a, a thumbnail sketch of your life leading up to this film tour? Because I want to spend plenty of time talking about this feature-length film, what it's like to be in this phase. Totally. But first, let's talk about what came before all this. Yeah, how do you find yourself here? <laughs> the sort of like nebulous setup of how to, how we landed here. Um, yeah, because the fun. Sorry, one more thing I want to add is one thing I think is really interesting is so much of your material is sort of making fun of, musing about the very ephemeral world that is our outdoor industry and how professional athletes get to where they are, how industry people find themselves and all these weird decisions and cultural norms we find ourselves swimming in. Mm -hmm. And in a funny way, like you, you have uh, a similarly, like, how did you get here path? You know, cause we may, we may look at some all-star skier and be like, Oh, they're great. Larger than life. And like, that's who you're making fun of a lot of times. Sure. But you're, you have a similar path in some ways. Like you're, <laughs> like, one of these days you're, you, there's comedy inception that could happen. Quickly, oh my I God. I feel like it's already happened. Like in 2017, I made a short called Influencer where I was playing. I saw that, yeah. I was playing this like diehard wannabe influencer. And I was literally in character all of the time on my social media channels. And... I did that, I, I mean, like, I could be pretentious and call it, like, a public art installation, or I could literally just call it, like, I was just bullshitting and taking the piss. And um, I did that for, like, I want to say almost two years. And then next thing you know, smash cut, there I am getting paid to create influencer content for brands, which was what <laughs> my my uh, character's, you know, dream always was. So it's mm. very, this, the inception is already very, very real, but... The general, the thumbnail sketch, I love that term. So I've done stand-up comedy and improv for years since college days at McGill where I was like skipping foreign policy classes to go edit short films in the TV McGill office under the stairs and um, really discovered a love for comedy and film while I was living in Montreal, going to university, um, moved to the mountains after college to to ski and um, just found myself continuing to create short films within that context. So sort of whatever your life is, is kind of what you play to. And I started a comedy festival in Revelstoke and uh, like a stand-up comedy festival in Revelstoke and I started shooting these fun short films um, with really whoever would work with me on them. And then, um, one of those films, or one of those festivals, we had a few guys coming up from Vancouver and 
And one of them, the headliner, he looked at me, Ivan Decker, and he was like, you got to move to Vancouver and take this seriously. And, mm. um, and so I moved down to Vancouver. I started doing stand-up more full-time. I always had to have like a nine-to-five, basically, to support my comedy and, and um, like creative life, if you will. And I never really thought like having a creative career was actually like a possibility. And um, I got this job offer to be the, I was working like corporate world in Vancouver and I got this job offer to do, to do the marketing for Micah Halley skiing. And I, I felt like that was an opportunity for me to have sort of the closest thing to a creative career as I had had so far, because it was going to pay me to come up with production ideas and content and, and um, create short films for the marketing of this heli ski operation. So I took that job, and uh, and started. Yeah, I, I made a, a short film with Cody Townsend and Elise Sogstad about couples therapy. Like heli skiing is cheaper than couples therapy, and <laughs> and I sort of recognized that what I had was this unique skill set of um, you know comedy and comedy writing and improv and sketch and stand up. But I also had this you know, niche understanding of this space. And there was a massive trend for many years in the outdoor space of just everything being like extremely dramatic and, Mm. um, like seriously dramatic, super serious and dramatic Mm -hmm. and everything had to have this like profound story attached Mm -hmm. to it. Um, and slash, or just some sort of like climate change or mm-hmm. mother nature or you know some sort of like bigger than larger than life concept and i was like this is literally we're literally riding bicycles sliding on sticks on snow like being children in our adult bodies like what is going on with this shit and so um <laughs> <laughs> i started just kind of like taking the piss and that snowballed and um, really, it's a snowball. It's a runaway joke. My career is a runaway joke. Like, let's just call it that. And that combination of those two things is what, in my opinion, is what landed me landed me here, if you will. Um, I went down to LA. I did a, you know, I did a semester and a half of screenwriting at UCLA. I did try to like, you know, develop myself, you know, professionally as a as a creative. But I always ha- I always had to have like a nine to five that paid for it. And in 2019. Colleen and I had finished Dream Job and we put, which was a short film, one of the short YouTube films you're putting, you're talking about. We put the trailer out almost as a joke again. Like just no one really ever took us seriously for, I mean, for a long time. And we don't take ourselves that seriously. And we, and we did everything like absolute nonsense, minimal budget, like no budget. Like we were just, you know, a, a hope and a prayer and like our insane kind of never give up attitude and the desire for both of us just really to create and build our own careers and no one's going to hand it to you. So we'll, we'll, we'll take it. And, uh, we put out dream job and like the trailer went so crazy Hmm. and this is pre like viral algorithm stuff, you know, but it was definitely like, that was the first thing I ever experienced. That was like, quote unquote, like felt viral, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. within three weeks we had to hire a producer, Nat Segal to put on a full, to organize a full tour and we went all over the world with it. And um, and that fall, I my nine to five was basically like, you're no longer really doing your job. And I was like, that's <laughs> totally fair. And my boss is amazing, um, Nicole Frico. She was the CEO of Micah for the years that I was there. And 
she looked at me and she was like, honestly, like I would never want to lose you in this role, but if you don't quit, I'm going to fire you. Cause you don't be- <laughs> like, you don't belong here. You don't belong here and yeah. you got to go do your thing. So I took the leap, the leap, everyone calls it a leap. It's a free fall. Um, and <laughs> I started trying to create my own stuff with Colleen and, um, our small team that would sort of, that has sort of like ebbed and flowed of, of various people. And uh, that was a really, really, really rough first few months because three months after I made the decision or two months after I made the decision to go out, go out on my own, of course, COVID hit and uh, Mm. we lost all of our work. And I was in $30,000 of debt on my uh, film coach. I've told the story a thousand times, but it was the most outrageous experience of what the fuck have you done? You know? Yeah. But Around that same time, the realization guys reached out and asked if I wanted to do a feature. And uh, oh, really? So yeah. this this feature project started right as the pandemic hit. It did. Yeah, it wow. did. I started working on the outline in quarantine. Huh. So when you took the leap, took the free fall, was the idea that your bread and butter for a bit was going to be commercial stuff, or how were you? Where was the revenue going to be coming from? Well, we were hoping that our, we, we got a job, like we got a job working on a documentary that we called coach, which was the story of two women working together on the free ride world, free ride world tour. And, um, we had some budget for that, that we were kind of using to both finance the movie and the production of the movie, as well as pay for our our lives. And as you can imagine, that went really quickly uh, because we were traveling all over the world, shooting a documentary, um, and despite, you know, being a crew of two, things really add up. And we were, we had, we had blown through that budget by March. And, mm-hmm. and so come March, you know, when we were going to go shoot, yeah, an RV, uh, an RV commercial for Go RV. And we had, you know, some other random commercial work lined up for probably like, you know, that 10 to $15,000 kind of just, yeah. it's money through the door, it's cash flow, whatever it is all of those jobs got canceled. And so that $30,000 of debt was just, nothing was cash flowing to it, you know? Um, And it it just sat there and it was brutal. Um, And then we started getting brand work and uh, like months and months later and just started crawling out of the hole. So you've referenced Colleen a few times. Who's Colleen? Oh, sorry. I talk about Colleen like everybody just knows who she is because she's literally like my right hand man, and um, <laughs> I'm, she's like my yeah. She's all, we're always together. She's uh, she and I met on a hiking retreat in 2017, and you know back of the pack got talking about both of our frustrations in our careers. But Colleen and and decided we wanted to try working together. She's like a one man. She's like a one man production company. She's a a DP and a producer and a director and an editor. And, uh, she's a writer. I mean, we joke that she's the funny one. She comes up with all the funny stuff. I just know how to deliver it. But, um, she and I have been, you know, a two man team for, for almost six years. Uh, all the content that I create, she's filming and editing for the most part, save for the stuff that I've done with Ryan Collins or a handful of other people on our, on, on our team. But, um, yeah, Colleen's my my right hand man, and on the on the 
on set of Weak Layers, she was on monitor while I was on camera because I was directing and acting at the same time. And because mm. she and I have such a shorthand, she was really able to, she really knew what I was going for. We talked a lot about what I wanted out of my performance, what I was hope, hopeful for out of others' performances, what I um, what I was hopeful for out of tone and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so when she was on, on monitor or mon mon, as I made everyone call it, um, <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she was really like elemental in in um, helping me do both of those jobs, which were huge jobs in and of themselves, you know, on their yep. own. So going back to that super scary $30,000 debt phase at the beginning of the pandemic, what was your relationship like? What were those conversations like? What were you guys, was she in a similar, like were you guys totally in it together? Yeah, in that situation? I mean, I think that that was probably both of our career rock bottom, if mm -hmm. rock bottoms, you know, and we were in the trenches together and it was one of those things where it was like, I got you and you got me and mm -hmm. we're going to crawl out of this together because we have the complementary skill sets that we can, we can just be a two man team. We can work for free. We can do whatever it takes. We can we can just put one foot in front of the other. You have a camera, I have jokes. <laughs> Let's go film some of them and see what happens. And that's exactly what we did. But we, um, we really have a massive loyalty to each other. Whether or not we work on every single job together for the rest of our careers, like who knows, but I have a massive loyalty to Colleen and am entirely, uh, like not beholden, what's the word where you're like, um, if it weren't for her, I wouldn't be here, you know? I, I'm the public facing character, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, I get, I have the followers, I, ha I get the interviews, I do the this, I do the that, but it's not just me by any means. You know, there's Colleen, my producer Madison, Ryan Collins, you know, but in, in particular, Colleen. And if she didn't have the same kind of psychopathic work ethic that I do, which is that, there's no option for us to have any career other than this one that we both desire so much. And we will do whatever it takes, including being poor for however many years or broke or in debt or working for free or taking opportunities all over the world and traveling and sacrificing relationships, whatever it is, missing holidays, etc. So be it. But because this is the only way we're going to get where we want to get. And we are definitely still in the build, you know, um, and what, I mean, both of us are probably the same kind of personality that we will be in the build for our entire careers. You know, mm. they'll be like 70, like pulling me off of a movie set yeah. and I'll be like, no, we're building though. We're, we're going to build. Yeah. Um, sounds like the artistic experience. It's a, it's a calling <laughs> that you can't turn off. Um, yeah. I am always curious about, I mean, you kind of already answered it, but how, folks like you try to draw boundaries if at all but it sounds like you don't really yeah <laughs> <laughs> boundaries are hard when you're deeply 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 passionate about your work and creating has never felt like work for me and so I can do it and not realize that I'm working but then the people around me friends partners parents they're the ones that are kind of more so flagging to me like hey maybe you need to take a break hey maybe you need to 
put your phone away, hey, get off your computer, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Getting a dog has been like the greatest thing in some ways. Cause we go mountain biking, we go running, we go for walks and I, I can't work during those times every day. Um, but yeah, I, I just think, you know, having had the experience of working at, you know, I was in, I was in business, the, the marketing and business development chapter of a massive, like one of the big four law firms, you know, Norton Rose Fulbright. And I was at BCRA, BCREA, like the BC real estate association doing communications. And I've, you know, done marketing for the heli ski, like all these various jobs I've had where I was not, you know, living my dream experience and to now be living in that. It's so hard to, to want to take breaks from it because you're, yeah. you're well, especially when you're, especially when you're getting wins. I mean, yeah. when you're getting wins, wins on the board, like it, yeah. And what's so funny to me right now, what this reminds me of is the athletic experience that is the material for so much of your work, you know, like, cause I think it was, I saw a quote earlier from the Whistler film festival that basically characterizes weak layers as cementing you Katie Burrell as the action sports anti-hero. <laughs> um, I love that pull quote. I was like, thanks. But, this is going to be really handy for a lot of pitch decks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but in a lot of ways, like your story right now sounds like the sort of weighty, like inspirational, serious sort of story that a lot of athletes live and push, you know, your eat, sleep, breathing, your passion, not taking no for an answer, you know, sweeping everything aside. And yet so much of your material is going to battle for the normies, you know, as you called them in one of your, your YouTube videos. I think that's a really interesting juxtaposition you probably don't have time to really think about that at all but no um, I I love this parallel though it makes a ton of sense to me and I think it's why you know in a lot of ways like athletes while you know feeling wildly different than I do are people I often really connect with and it's because they can understand that blinder mentality and or the the blinders on mentality and they also are selfish <laughs> like I am yeah. um, when it comes to being on earth for a finite amount of time in this, in this body or whatever it is like, and you know, this time around my skill set isn't running fast or biking fast, but it's making people feel seen and making them laugh and bringing them together around shared experiences. And so I'm like, well, that's my, that's my duty on earth now is to, is to fulfill that and, and be a part of that. And I think that, you know, a lot of different, like when someone strikes that within themselves and I mean, if someone is passionate about anything, I can talk to them for hours. Mm-hmm. You know, if you care about anything, I don't give a shit what it is. If you care about something, we're the same, you know, mm-hmm. I just love people that or I connect with people, I guess that, that have that kind of, never say, never take no for an answer mentality. Cause it is, it is honestly brutal. And there's a hell of a lot easier way to be on earth. And, and that's to work with the machine, you know, that exists. It's, it's there for a reason. And then Colleen and I have talked about this a lot. Like we're working too hard. We're working too hard. Like w- there's gotta be an easier way to do this and finding those efficiencies and all that sort of stuff. Like there are so many parallels with being an athlete. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I just, I guess I will say like a lot of my close friends are athletes and 
I've been, you know, comparing myself to professional athletes out there in Revelstoke for however many years. The comedy felt kind of obvious, like the the self deprecation, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the self deprecation yeah, yeah, yeah. factor. And then it was just really interesting. It was like, you know, the the whole like normies stuff, the leisure athlete stuff, the girlfriend boyfriend dynamic or part. I shouldn't even say it because it works for. It works for non-hetero relationships as well. Um, but the power dynamic of learning a, a new sport with one's partner, um, all that kind of stuff is born out of my own torment. And um, me putting that work out into the world, or I, I mean, I don't really like to call it work, me putting that those jokes out into the work, into the world and for my own <laughs> healing and discovering that there was more people than not that felt the exact same way was like the most... Uh, freeing experience for me and therapizing sort of simultaneously and uh, I think for others as well so I met someone this weekend at Whistler who was like you know you've brought so much joy to my and my wife's relationship when it comes to us biking together because we used to fight all the time and and now we just laugh when either of us is having a temper mm. tantrum and yeah. uh you've brought so much you've brought so much joy into our lives in that way. And I was like, wait, stop. Like you have brought so much joy into my life because mm. I was living that experience on my own. It felt like, mm. and then I was just mm -hmm. the one to say it first or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you, you identified ultimately is that I, I think a lot of times we experience things in our lives and we think that it's unique to us, but actually they're just pretty common human experiences. But a lot of times we're too embarrassed to vocalize them. And you've just sort of put it out there in the open. Um, before we move on to weak layers, um, do you ever get DMs on Instagram from people that you just kind of triggered and they get defensive? Or is it usually supportive and grateful? You know what's interesting is um, I get more, I, I have so many unread DMs that make, it breaks my heart, but I try to go through there like when I have downtime and just like get back to people because I actually just love interacting with um, people on, like people that that like the content. It feels good. Obviously, it's always been about the audience. It's not about me. Um, so I get so many supportive and grateful DMs of people having a laugh or people telling me their stories or we were talking about this the other day. Like there was this couple. So I made this hiking video. Uh, Colleen and I made this hiking video we went hiking for three days in, in, B, in BC near Invermere and we made this hiking video and one of the jokes was um, the girl standing there going this would be a nice place to if someone wanted to ask a question like as in you know <laughs> yes <laughs> prompting prompting the the guy to ask her to she's having a temper tantrum on this hike but then she's like has like a moment of realization that maybe she's getting proposed to anyway so this couple messaged me and, and this woman messaged me and she goes my boyfriend and I love this video so much and for the last like year we've had this joke where uh, I would go this looks like a nice place to ask a question and I'd say it to him all the time and we were walking <laughs> the other day and I, he stopped and I turned around and he was on one knee and he goes this might be a nice place to stop and ask a question <laughs> They it's got like you were right engaged. there with them. <laughs> they got engaged over the joke. I couldn't. Oh my goodness. I'm like the oh man, the joy. Um, I but of course you you know you get you get these awesome stories from folks and like them telling you know how they how it's like connected them or whatever made it. But then you, you remember the ones that were also yeah. you know, and I remember this one very early on when I put out one of my first like mountain biking. Um, 
videos of t- 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 toxic girlfriend as we call her internally, but brands don't like it when we call her that because it's, you know, not empowering women, <laughs> which brands are always <laughs> fucking worried about. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and uh, this woman reached out to me and was like, I don't like how you've represented women. You know, you're not empowering us and I'm not a woman like this. So I don't relate to your content. And I think it's problematic and regressive of you to say that women ha- ha- have behaved like this. And I was like, cool like so you're telling me you've literally never had a temper tent like you know what i mean like i don't know i i mean some people are going to feel that way and i think more people than not don't but i I thought it was an interesting point that she was like you know this is regressive to women but i think that there's actually something for like you know the concept of like owning your shadow and that being Mm -hmm. like the most empowering thing you can do like the one thing that's wrong with you or quote unquote wrong with you or bad about you or like you're the shitty part of you or the thing that you hate about yourself if you can actually like own it you can transmute it into like power for yourself and so i think that um laughing at ourselves and laughing at our you know our shittiness is actually arguably in my you know more empowering i mean Mm -hmm. i will also credit i will use uh cody and Elise again, and Jackie Paso and Rena Barkerhead, they just made a, a video called Hold My, Here, Hold My Kid with um, John O'Verity, and, and uh, it's on Red Bull TV. And it's all about like being a mom and still wanting to be competitive and a professional skier. Mm-hmm. And they are 100% satirizing themselves as you know caricatures and making fun of themselves. But it's also teasing this incredibly serious culture of being a perfectionist mother you know and Mm -hmm. having to do everything perfectly for your child and whatever it is and there's more freedom in making fun of which i know that that we're like we're trying to get out of bully bullying language or whatever there's more freedom in teasing yourself or satire or laughing at yourself than there is in trying to achieve these perfect approaches to political correctness that actually Mm, just keep mm -hmm. people feeling very censored and Mm. like they're always going to say the wrong thing or or put their foot in their mouth and then people don't communicate anymore or they don't talk about their shared experiences and yeah that's an interesting one i mean that that almost goes back to your your origin story of stand-up comedy i mean that's as basic a topic to stand-up comedy as there is and it's so interesting how culturally we decide to draw those lines Mm -hmm. um yeah that is interesting so one thing i'm curious about is the creative process of these jokes is it like um you know we hear great composers for example stories they'll just sit up in bed at night and have to go straight to the piano and they don't move for 18 hours until they, they have this perfect, whatever created. Um, you kind of have two, I don't know how you would describe it, but from my perspective, it sort of seems like you have your real game, which is like nice, tight 20 second jokes. Mm-hmm. And then you have these films, which obviously mm-hmm. are way more built out. It's all kind of the same material, just sort of different formats. Um, how do you go about actually deciding where to put things, how you want to present them to the world. How long do you sit on ideas? Do you have like a, a notebook that's bursting at the seams or do you voice dictate little ideas into your phone? How does all that like, work? I feel like at my core, I am, I used to have a notebook when I was doing stand up. I always had a notebook. I feel like at my core, I am an, an improviser 
and an, mm. and a performer. So having Colleen um, laugh is like the or anyone laugh is like the greatest uh, data point I can get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if some it's like if something's working you download from the crowd or audience yeah. or three people what else <laughs> you can give them and so <laughs> you know all of these videos that we have put out is really just me making Colleen laugh, laugh if you think about it you know mm-hmm. and um or whoever's on the other side of the camera and that's you know that's more so in that like short form style stuff it's it's really like making the 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 crew laugh and if the crew starts laughing well, see you later. I'm going to be riffing for as long as, as I can until someone tells me to stop. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, and then the way you like cut them together is they have to do, they have to do like, I mean, there's like science to structuring comedy and that kind of thing where, you know, you look at a mockumentary, for example, that has a very obvious style setup, And we sometimes shoot things like that, or it just the one liner sort of rapid fire stuff that you see all over the internet. Um, We've played a lot with like cutting stuff off in the middle of things. You, you make that jump yourself as the audience member and making that jump yourself often makes you laugh harder than if somebody hands it to you. And mm-hmm. so there's all these kind of little tools you can you can use in the editing. And then as with long form stuff, I mean, weak layers, I think you'll find and people will find like weak layers is a huge jump from what we've been doing so far. I mean, we we went from working as a two man, two to four man team to, you know, a 25 person team. So all of a sudden you have so many incredible collaborators, so many minds, so many people, you know, to bounce ideas off of, work on things, workshop stuff. Um, and I had a bigger audience on set as well, but, um, you know, the process there is significantly more structured because there are like ways to do things when it comes mm-hmm. to um, features. And so when I put together the first, you know, version of the script for the producers, Jared Drake and Steven Sig, um, they could tell that I had not finished my screenwriting program at UCLA. <laughs> and um they were very gracious about it but they they connected me almost immediately to this incredible screenwriter named andrew ladd who has a real sense of you know he's a lot more experienced been a screenwriter for 20 years and he has a lot more experience with structure and the three acts and story sensibility etc so um we got on the phone and we just started you know he just started asking me questions actually and sort of mining me for like maybe jokes or character stuff or dialogue or whatever it was. And then he and I really um, worked on that in a much much more structured, uh, much more structured way. And then, you know, going into production on Weak Layers, and I, I will just say like, since Weak Layers, every single job that Colleen and I have done in the last year, we have treated it so much more like that than we ever did anything before. We do things, significantly different now and um, differently and we you know we write scripts we storyboard we we hire extras we do things that we never knew how to do um prior to week layers and we would just we were so run and gun by the seat of our pants kind of a if this is making us laugh and it's probably funny yeah kind of a thing but uh week layers was like 
oh, this is how you actually pull off something this big. There are mm-hmm. these rules and there are these systems and there are these team people for a reason. You know, we're, I'm looking at the camera team going on weekly layers. I'm like, we have a DP, we have a first AC, and we have a second AC. Are you kidding me? We need three people to run the freaking camera. I'm <laughs> like, you guys got to, and then two days in, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe they're pulling this off with only three guys. You yeah. know what I, you know what I mean? Like, so you just realize like the, the way that the mechanics of these movie sets operate, everybody has such an important job, whether you are, you know, the lowest rung on the ladder or the, at the, you know, considered the top of the, the hierarchy. Um, everyone is so crucial to make sure that you're making your days, get everything, everything you need done, making sure no one's burning out. Everybody's like, it is the most they talk about like movie sets being like the closest to like a military structure in terms of mm. every single person is so crucial, but there has to be this really intense chain of command and everyone's little micro jobs dramatically affect their micro team within the bigger team. And so being a part of that has totally changed my creative process, I will say, because planning was something that used to give me anxiety and prep was something that used to give me anxiety because I would start to feel like I would see the holes or the ways that it wasn't going to work. But um, in the process of doing this first feature, I've recognized that planning and prep is actually like, this is a reason why everybody else in the world does this. (laughs) There's a reason why, you know. Um, Well, where did you, uh, let's kind of take that um, description of the actual set for a minute that you just gave. I think that's really interesting. Where did you fit into that hierarchy? Because you, you were a writer on this, you were a director, main character. But like you mentioned, you had these deficiencies, for example, with the, uh, the script writing. Totally. Where did you follow? Where did you fall? Cause you're working with veterans. It sounds like you had an awesome team. Yeah. Where did you follow fall in that hierarchy? Like in, in any given day of shooting? I mean, it was interesting in that um, I was at like maybe the one of the one of the top of the food chain kind of positions, but I was very forthcoming with everyone from the start that this was my first time, and I knew for a fact that everyone, most everyone on set, save for like one of the PAs, had never PA'd before. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I was. And Colleen had ever worked on a, on a feature film set as well. And, and um, I was very forthcoming with everyone that I knew I was, you know, quote unquote, most people's boss, to put it sort of basically. But I didn't want it to be like that because th- there was a guarantee that they were going to know more than I was. And I yeah. really wanted the teams around me to feel like they could talk to me, communicate, collaborate, and bring things to me um, because I just I just knew for a fact that if I tried to like act like I knew more than I did, it was just gonna shoot myself in the foot, you know. And that like make it, fake it till you make it thing, I threw up threw that out on set because I um, I needed everyone's support. And I needed everyone to be um, on my team. And I think that there's Mm -hmm. something about having someone like blowing smoke up your ass that just makes you not want to help them. But if someone's Mm -hmm. like, you know, if someone's straightforward with you, I need your help, you want to help. And everyone on the team is was such an expert at their various jobs, you know, Um, 
you know, I, I think about my DP, Ryan DeFranco, all the time and what a godsend he was to me because he knew, you know, he, he's a Tisch grad. He's been working on movies and shorts and, and for so many years. And, and um, the things that he flagged to me that I would have never caught on my own and would have maybe not, um, like if I was prideful, for example, and trying not to look like I didn't know what I was doing, the movie would have suffered. But because yeah. I was um, like, DeFranco, what do you see? You know, what am I missing? And he's like, well, you know, there's this plot hole here. If we don't shoot this over, then we're not going to have this in the edit or we're not. And because he had that sort of, you know, experience and that head on him, um, I'm going to go get the credit, but he, he, it's cause of him, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and it was the same thing with the producers and, and with the co-writer and with Andrew, my, my co-writer and with Jared on set, like, you know, Jared would catch things in my performance every once in a while. He'd come over, Hey, Hey, you played this all really hot. You want to play this one a little bit lower? And I'd be like, Oh my fucking God. Like I would have never seen this because I have 800 things on my mind mm. and we're just trying to get through this one scene, which maybe in my head, I think is a, is a, maybe more of a throwaway scene. I can just like ship it, you know? Mm. And he just catch these little things and, and he'd come to me and, um, and, and I'm like an internally, uh, eternally, uh, indebted to these people for raising me up really and and I just tried to make sure that the the culture and the environment on set was very much like you can let's talk let's collaborate and I try to take the same approach with a lot of the actors on set you know what do you see how do you want to ground the character in in your own reality or in your own truth or um yeah I mean I just that that approach really it really served me on that on that set um because there were so many i mean on on an indie budget you're dealing with for the most part every single person is a is it is is an extremely passionate individual because they're not there for the paycheck they're there because they care about their work Mm -hmm. and and if you let people care about their work it'll blow your mind what you'll get out of them you know um, mm-hmm. and looking at the finished product, you know, I'm, I'm just blown away with, with all of these little details that, you know, there's a scene where there was this really, there was this really hard transition and we were just banged up over this tra- tra- transition. My editor, Anna Rocky and I, and, and, um, I went away from it and I didn't, I just sort of left it. And three days later, she, or two days later, she sent me an, an email or a text like middle of the night, like, what if? And it's like one of the greatest transitions in the movie now. And it was not from, it was not in the script. It was not in the storyboard. It was nowhere. It was, it was something she just thought of because she saw the footage, knew the footage so well and had a problem solving brain. And, Mm. um, I mean, editors are in, in, they're like integral to a director's process because they, they catch stuff that that an, that a you know the director or the producers aren't anymore, um, and so it's it's stuff like that where I watch the movie and I'm like you know this is really like okay directed by Katie Burrell and team really mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. everyone really did rally around me and and I'm forever appreciative of it. Yeah, what is it like to be in a directing role and lead actor role simultaneously? Because obviously you were acting in your Katie Burrell character but then you were also Katie Burrell, the director. 
who, you know, those are two different people in a way. Totally. I mean, it's, it's pretty vulnerable because as the director, you're supposed to kind of be the, the last stop on the chain of command in terms of decision-making. Um, so to go from that kind of a role where you're making these calls constantly and really trying to be tapped into the bigger picture vision and holding that vision for everyone else, as soon as you get in front of the camera, you become very uh, reliant on others. And so I was constantly, in particular, you're reliant on your director. You know, they're your vision holder. You're, they're your, you know, they're your uh, point person. And so for me, going from having the vision, holding the vision, having the, calling the shots to help, where am I um, in time and space, you know, uh, was a challenge. Fortunately, I had, you know, Colleen, Jared, Andrew to support me there and DeFranco, frankly, but um, it, it's something that I think is probably really a result of circumstance, it being a low-budget film, us not having a budget, the budget necessarily for, uh, and then, you know, conversations around what does it look like if I buckle, you know, mm. and um, having continued. What do you mean? Like, what like would if I couldn't look like? Hand, if I couldn't handle it, like if I couldn't do both, you know, if I yeah. showed up to set and I didn't know my lines, like, the producers had contingency plans in place for all that kind of stuff, you know, and um, I was fortunately able to pull it off. But I will say it's probably not something I will do again, maybe ever, gotcha. if not for a very long time, maybe ever. You know, it's I just think that as a result of acting and directing, I probably was giving both of those roles 70 yeah. percent, you know, and um, it's not really fair to the rest of your cast who are wholly reliant on a director, but then they're in a scene with you. And so yeah. that was the trickiest part is you are somebody's scene partner. And then at the end of the scene, you know, Colleen or, or Jared would call cut. And um, or if I was on not on camera, I'd call cut. But, you know, you're their scene partner and or and then you're their boss or whatever. Again, that term is very basic for this kind of a collaborative working environment, but um, you're delivering them feedback or notes or whatever. And it was this like, I don't want to be in, I don't want to be that power dynamic with you when we're supposed to be, or we just were equals in the scene. Um, so that was really like tricky for me in terms of like relationship management, yep. relationship dynamic management. And it was constantly like this kind of, um, this uh, thing like running in the back of my mind as well to be aware of my bedside manner for lack of a better term yeah, yeah, yeah. of how I was delivering notes to my fellow castmates um, while also being in scenes with them. And yeah. then also my like, you know, people pleasing nature, making sure that I was checking myself there as well. Um, and it was a huge growth experience for me to step into the directing role in particular. Um, and then, you know, the, I mean, I will say the acting as well, but there's a lot of sort of autobiographical elements to Cleo Brown in Weak Layers and whether from myself or even just Colleen or close friends of mine, Zoya Lynch, she's a, photo a photographer, a friend of mine, um, various other, you know, women that I know and that have worked in the outdoor industry, Leah Evans, 
fighting for women's skis, not just top sheets, you know, and feeling like I had a sort of a duty to represent them as best as I could. Um, but it was a, it was a step up for sure in terms of, in terms of there being, you know, more than just one liners in the woods alone. There was a range of sort of (laughs) emotionality that was necessary. And, um, you know, there's a B story, you know, a love story and, um, yeah, there was more, a, a level of vulnerability I hadn't explored yet or hadn't explored in a long time as an actor, I should say. And, um, combining that with the vulnerability of just what I was going through as someone who was drinking out of a fire hose, trying to learn how to be on a set. It was an extremely thrilling period of my life because I'm obsessed with learning and growth. But, um, it was also like, I always felt a little bit, um, like there were these eyes over my shoulder. And, and fortunately I just had such a, yeah, such incredible support that that we got through it and and the finished product is pretty good. Yeah. So would you in the future do you foresee yourself leading leaving the director role behind and focusing on the acting side or I find or would it depend? Yeah, it would depend. Um I just don't really want to do them at the same time again. Yeah, gotcha. But mm-hmm. um you know, for a while anyway. Um yeah. I think I really, I need to, I need to, I would love to act for a very experienced director. Like I would love mm. to see how a quote unquote real director works, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Even just, I, I was in a short film a couple of weeks ago um, for a friend of mine, Mishki Vakara, who um, wrote and directed a, a short film about her mother's um, death. And I, I acted in it and it was like the first drama I'd done in, since high school, I guess, really. And uh, even just, you know, Mishki has directed a handful of things, but even just having, watching her and having her to, to lean on and look to for, you know, feedback, it, it made the acting experience so much deeper for me and, and so much realer um, in terms of grounding the character in, in my own experience. And I do feel like... Um, acting is one of the most thrilling things I've ever done. I don't know if that's because I'm like a locked up person in my own life that doesn't necessarily emote properly or, um, yeah, there's something extremely freeing about acting and there's, which is sort of, you know, it's a selfish pursuit in that sense. It's like, eh, this makes me feel like I can say whatever I want. Like what a luxury, you know, ultimately, but there's something extremely thrilling about it. And there's also something that I've always loved about connecting with an audience that acting satisfies so profoundly. Maybe that's like the only child. I'm an only child. Maybe it's something to do with like, want, like always wanting to reach out to people in some capacity or having people like connect to people in some capacity. But um, the directing thing really satisfies the big picture thinker piece of me that sees sees something from start to finish and directing is so interesting in you know looking at dailies and which takes work with other takes and how do you build stuff that you didn't even shoot or like you didn't even script like how do you build stuff out of the footage that you just got music you know Mm -hmm. how you transition scenes how you 
how you fluff someone up or build chemistry between two people that didn't get along on set at all. Or, you know, there's so much, there's so much there in the, in the directing post-production process that I find so interesting as well, you know, right down to when I watch movies, I'm watching their, their opening credits. I'm like, Oh wow. Yeah. You know, how'd they do that? Or, you know, stuff. So yeah, are you able to are you able to get lost in movies when you watch them, or are you just too wound up in, oh, that was an insane shot, or I can't believe they shot it from that angle? I feel like what's I, your experience like? I do both. I'm I just saw May December with Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore and Charles Melton. It's a Todd Haynes directed film, and I was it was like my both sides of my brain were working at the same time. Yeah, like I was like yeah. so in the performance. And mm-hmm. I was also like, damn, Todd Haynes, damn, Todd Haynes. And then I was also yeah. <laughs> like, you watch Natalie Portman do something like a scene where she's so in it, for example, and you're like completely lost in her performance. And you're also like, this fucking woman is a beast of yeah, an actress. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, or you're just like part of you is like triggered by their talent and beauty and then another part of you is like so inspired by it and then another part of you is just in the story and i mean that's the credit to the director who can take talent like that like three big talents like that and shape and mold them and play them off of each other and such an incredible way. So I feel like I have an almost, um, I always loved movies, but I feel like I have an, um, an exaggerated ex- appreciation for them now, mm-hmm. having been through one, um, one myself. Um, yep. So I, I, yeah, it's an obsession that I don't think is going anywhere, frankly. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love how granular we got, uh, but we haven't really even talked about what Weak Layers is to an extent from a, from a broader standpoint. So sure. I haven't seen it. I've seen the trailer. I'm guessing it's about a 90 minute film. Um, Bang on. Like we've talked about, huge leap from the YouTube shorts that you've done. Obviously, very, very far removed from an Instagram reel. It sounds like you just sort of got a cold call at a time of serious need, no less. <laughs> but from that point in time, like who who reached out? Why did they reach out to you? What were they looking for? And um, if you can just give people kind of like a general synopsis of what that process looks like, folks who maybe aren't familiar with the filmmaking process. Totally. I mean, it, that was effectively a cold call from Jared Drake and Steven Sig at Realization Films, um, which is a privately financed production company in Tahoe. And they had seen Dream Job and they sent Colleen an email and asked to get on the phone. And uh, we got on the phone with them in February 2020 when we were in Fever Brune, drinking Aperol spritzes at the Freeride World Tour stop there. And uh, because of the time change, it was like 9 p.m. our time and, and early morning their time. And um, so I was, you know, wildly confident that I could pull off a feature. <laughs> and then they asked, they, <laughs> they with my absolute lack, like zero experience, they asked for a handful of pitch decks and, um, and we, we pitched them on a few different concepts. And I mean, they were interviewing a bunch of different writers that, mm. with the idea that they wanted to make a ski comedy. They wanted to bring back a hot tub time machine, out cold, Aspen Extreme, hot dog style movie, but they wanted to do it with a POV from like a, a female POV. 
and mm. or a feminist not a feminist take on it necessarily like a female take on it and um I mean, because if you watch like Hot Dog, it's just like tits getting water poured on them for a night. <laughs> and, uh, and so they wanted to, to you know, do a, a 2020-some version of it. And uh, Weak Layers itself is, you know, while having elements of or inspiration drawn from Hot Dog and, and Hot Tub Time Machine and Aspen Extreme, it's very much a um, an ode to what it's like to be um, living like a, a young woman living in a mountain town who is limited by really nothing but herself. And yeah. um, I actually don't think that that's a gender specific experience or conversation, but that was the, the, the character is a woman here. The film itself is a sort of like set in the rowdy, uh, outrageous party culture of a ski town, um, a, a one woman's sort of attempt to get out of her own way, um, neutralize her own self-limiting beliefs, and start to live her her dreams. And her passion lies in ski filmmaking, um, and and. She's definitely, you know, feels like an outsider in that space. There's the Warren Millers and the Sherpa Cinemas and the the big dogs um, of the game. And, and there she is bartending and not living her truth and drinking too much and partying and hooking up with random tourists that come to town. <laughs> um, all is sort of all is sort of a way to avoid herself. And the metaphor there being that, you know, a weak layer is the layer in a snowpack wherein enough when in enough pressure is applied to it or load is applied to it that it breaks and it sends the whole, you know, side of the mountain down. And in, in the case of Cleo Brown, my character, um, the unique set of circumstances that stacked up to get her to where she currently is, aka her snowpack, and then the uh, specific uh, load applied to her very specific, you know, set, set of circumstances is what causes her to break and her own avalanche to, to go crescending mm. down the mountain. Um, yeah, that's great. Maybe that's too heady because I did like the prepper and then playing to play the character, or whatever, but really it's like a fun story about a girl finding her way. <laughs> yep. I could have done that way faster. Sorry. No, no, I love that. So you mentioned Hot Tub Time Machine, which obviously was uh, a pretty mainstream hit. I think I even saw it in the theater, maybe. Mm. Um, is the idea that this can target as broad an audience? Did you kind of diversify the material enough? Totally. From from your usual work? Yeah. That is the, that is the goal. Um, there's a sort of like, you know, niche environment. There's enough inside baseball jokes in there yeah. that the core ski community, the core outdoors community will get and love. But you can watch a baseball movie and not know what the yeah. hell, you know, a batting mm -hmm. average is and still get a kick out of the, the love story or the, the, yeah. the, the game itself or the characters or whatever. And so in this case, I think that there's definitely mainstream appeal for finding your, you know, the story of finding your own way and getting out yeah. of your own way to um, embark upon a career, or chase your dreams. And um, while being set in this kind of like, you know, niche outdoor space or outdoor or ski town world. Um, but we go to the, we have been 
acquired for distribution, which is incredible, by Greenwich Entertainment, which yeah, is I the same that. company that uh, distributed Free Solo. So they cool. have had a proven track record with taking that sort of like, you know, I mean, I would argue that climbing is less niche than skiing, but um, taking something niche and, and putting it out to the mainstream and getting it out mm-hmm. to the mainstream. And I think they saw, they must have seen something in Weeklayers that, that um, they think they could probably do the same thing with. So, you know, fingers crossed that there's broader appeal than just to skiers. We've shown it so far in primarily ski and outdoor towns, you know, Banff, Kendall, Whistler. Um, but in January, it goes to theaters and, you know, everywhere from Reno to San Francisco to L.A. to Seattle to Denver to Salt Lake City to Vancouver, Toronto. So that'll be the big data point collector, you know, yeah. period is going to be January as this thing rolls out to both major markets and ski towns that Gre- Greenwich has been super cool as they've been booking it in terms of trying to target some of those places that uh, that there's already an audience for it in. And yeah, staying true to the roots a little bit. Totally. And, and yeah. you know, whether I have, maybe I have like, you know, a handful of followers in, in somewhere like Jackson Hole that, you know, bring a couple of their friends out. And the next thing you know, yeah. you have 30, 40 people in a theater. That's, you know, now we're off, we're off to the races. So, yeah. Um, It'll be very exciting to see what happens in January. And then February 6th, we go to streaming. Um, so I don't know. I'm hopeful for week layers. I'm, I think maybe it'll be maybe a bit of a slower burn um, as people sort of discover it. But um, we had insane turnout in Banff and Kendall and Whistler. And so I feel incredibly hopeful that the film really continues to resonate with people and make them feel seen and make them have a laugh at their own experiences in ski towns, whatever that might have been, uh, or, or their own just lives in general. Yeah. Um, we need to get you out of here, but I have one more. I mean, I could. I have so many personal curiosities about this <laughs> whole process, but um, one thing bigger picture I was wondering about is, and it's such a cliche podcast question, but um, I think it's more relevant for you. Who, who in the broader filmmaking industry are you fans of what sort of actors do you gravitate to what whose work do you really appreciate i mean you could even shout out a couple of your favorite films but are there any people's work that you kind of aspire to yeah i mean i will say greta gerwig is like my number one expander i didn't Um, want to literally shout out barbie (laughs) because i didn't want to be like i didn't know how you would receive that but based on what I know about this film and how I oh, experienced Barbie, Barbie. Like, set the stage for Wee <laughs> okay, Glares. I'm okay, like, thank okay, cool, you. Good. I'm like, Greta doesn't even know I exist. So she has my back. Yeah, um, yeah. But, and actually like, you know, in the, in the process of, I mean, I've watched Greta's career now for 10 l- lols at me calling her by her first name. Like we're pet buddies, <laughs> but I've, I've honestly been following her career for years and, um, and gone to see films that she was in, in the theaters and watching just the sort of like sort of shameless way that she's, she is on camera. And then mm-hmm. the dedication that she's taken to her work and the way that she's consistently stayed true to, you know, obviously her style of what she thinks is funny and, and unique and and I, I yeah I, I she's a major um, inspiration for me in terms of 
coming up and doing it your way. And, um, you know, the early like mumblecore kind of style stuff. Um, yeah, super, super, super inspirational to me in that you can start from scratch and just stay true to yourself and your voice is going to connect, um, with audiences if you stay true to your voice, you know, and hearing more and more about the Barbie process and like how that was, you know, five years in the making. And I mean, there's lots that's been said about Barbie, like whether it's, you know, oh, it's so self-referential, it's winking at itself or, oh, it's, you know, it's uh, two years late or three years late in terms of like popular culture, like conversation or, but who Mm. gives a shit? It's, it's taking a conversation about, sexism and gender the gender wars and made them hilarious and Mm -hmm. therefore easier to take in and mainstream as hell and like you can't fault you can't fault it if it's accomplished those things in my opinion um so definitely her i also i mean to that same vein margot robbie obviously like the most intense a-lister in the world but um i shouldn't say intense actually she seems lovely but uh, in terms of her being like the A plus, she's an A plus lister, mm-hmm. but she, um, you know, she went from being cast as an actress to, or an actor to saying like, actually, like I want to be on the other side of this equation as well. And she's a producer and she has a production company with her, her husband and, and the way that she's sort of taken, she's taken, um, like like a lead on her own career instead of having it dictated by others, I think is really inspiring and very cool. And, um, and then there are people, you know, I can't help but be expanded by people like Seth Rogen and Mm. Jonah Hill, who literally did stand up in the same bars and clubs that I did in Vancouver, you know, albeit, you know, 10 years earlier or eight or 10 years earlier, but they wrote super bad in high school and it went like a house on fire and set up their entire careers and they just seem like they're having fun making things with their friends and if it's making them laugh that's what it's about and i love that approach and think that it's so it's such a dangerous game to get caught up in what people want from you or what you you know it's hard not to hear your audience it's not it's hard not to hear feedback but if you have a solid group of people around you that you're having fun with you know and they're your buffers or they're your guardrails if you will for what's funny and what's not uh, I think that that's an incredible place to be within the outrageous structure of Hollywood and yeah, no um, kidding. so yeah I have I mean yeah and I I just love the I love the bootstrappers. I love the, I mean, obviously I have no, I have no issue with nepo, nepotism or nepo baby, whatever, whatever, but I can't help but love, I love a, a came from nowhere story. Um, yeah. So. Love that. Love that. Well, I'm, I'm real, I'm extra excited now to watch Week Layers because I, like I said, I didn't want to just come right out and shout out Barbie, but it really <laughs> does seem like there are some, similarities and you know how how thought-provoking can skiing actually be how thought-provoking can a movie about barbies actually be but i remember walking out of the theater and our drive home was probably more 
introspective and then uh, cultivated. There was there was a lot of conversation after Barbie. Like, yeah. I remember I remember driving home feeling more floored, really, than even after like walking out of Oppenheimer or something. Right. Because it just sort of tricks you into thinking about a lot of stuff. It does. Um, it does. And, and so, there's something really interesting that she did as well, Greta did as well, with stereotypes and mm. um, and playing with stereotypes that I is just like my sense of my sense of humor. But like mm-hmm. Will Ferrell's CEO of Mattel is <laughs> yeah. was flawless in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. obviously so over the top and outrageous, but it it allows for that as you say, like those conversations and in weak layers, we let our, we, my villain, Dane Blake, he has, you know, yeah, he's outrageous and he's a caricature and he's a stereotype. But as a result, there are the, it's like, you can see that t- yeah. trope for, yeah, you, you know, have to confront it. You have yeah. to conf- confront the trope to like adjust it. And so, um, uh, yeah, he's my one of my personal favorite characters in in the film, and but yeah, Barbie. Uh, yeah, sorry, I cut you off because I just thought of that oh, no. parallel there. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's get you out of here. Uh, February, people will be able to stream it. Is yep. it Apple TV Plus? Yeah, and... it'll be on Amazon Prime and yep. iTunes or Apple TV as of. Uh-huh. February 6th and then who knows like um, the way that these things go that it becomes often like a snowball effect of licensing deals etc cetera, etc cetera, as things change and I mean in a perfect world we have a an international deal at some point that makes it available to people um, outside of the US and Canada as well yeah and where can people find the theater schedule that's a good question I don't actually know yet. We won't know okay. our theaters until sort of mid-December. It turns out it's okay. like a very last minute process, mm, um, which I didn't know. And maybe that's just like more like the indie game, but yeah. um, it's a last minute, it's it's more of a last minute process. Once it's, once it's uh, locked in mid-December, it'll be on the weeklayers.com website, as well as um, my channels, Katie Burrell TV, uh, to make sure that people know when and where they can check it out and when it's coming to their city. Sweet. Thanks, Katie. This was fun. Thanks for so much time. Oh, thank you. Thanks for taking the time and thinking of me. Appreciate it. Hello again, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Katie Burrell. Uh, Laughed a little along with us. Keep an eye out for weak layers, whether it comes to a theater near you or you uh, you stream it via Amazon or Apple when it becomes available there. I certainly will be tuning in the first chance I get. One more heads up that over on the Adventure Stash Instagram, we are giving away an Osprey 40 liter transporter duffel. I personally love this bag. Um, I can't remember the last time I went on a trip and I didn't take it with me. It's weather resistant, super durable. And all you have to do to win it is go play our Friday quiz on the Adventure Stash Instagram and we'll pick a winner. Um, If next week is not your lucky week, you can try again the following week because Osprey will be giving away another sweet bag. Tune in next week to get a little hint on what you have to look forward to. Big thanks to Lily McAlvin for editing and producing the show each and every week. Thanks to all of y'all for listening, being dedicated listeners and supporting the show. Uh, We'll check in with you next week. 